Mutants Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is Pete Johnson. Pete is a programmability and cloud principal engineer for Cisco. Pete has used his skills to analyze and predict the box office performance of movies and goes by the Twitter handle at sign NerdGuru. Hello, Pete. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. No problem, Milton. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to have you here because you have a lot of expertise in the intersection between art and commerce. It's a recurring topic of interest uh, among me and my friends. And one of the venues in which you explored that intersection was in uh, participating in the online uh, fantasy football Hollywood box office uh, prediction game called Fantasy Movie League. Did I get that name right? You did. Guilty as charged. <laughs> and for those who are uninitiated, could you give us a brief overview of like what, what was the structure of the game and what was it like? Sure. So uh, Fantasy Movie League was kind of the brainchild of Matthew Barry, who if you played fantasy football any time in the last 15 years, you probably know he's ESPN's lead fantasy football analyst. And he had played a a variation of this for years with his friends. Um, But the way that it, it the way that the actual public version of it worked was is that you were the proprietor of an imaginary movie theater. And you had two limitations. You had $1,000 of pretend money, they called them Cinebucks, um, that you could use to fill your eight screens. So you had to fill, you could fill up to eight screens of your pretend movie theater, and you could spend up to 1,000 Cinebucks. And every week there would be 16 movies at your disposal that would have varying costs to them. So For example, you know, if a blockbuster was opening that weekend, it might cost you 800 Cinebucks and something that had been running for six weeks might cost you five. Um, And so you had so you could fill you could in in that example, you could fill all eight of your screens with the one that cost five and only spend um, in that case, 40 of your Cinebucks. Um, But there were many that were that were priced at intermediate prices. And, and the trick was to try to find out what was the best way you could spend your thousand Cinebucks um, to fill your eight screens and then your score. Uh, so you, you had to submit that by Friday morning at I think it was 9 a.m. Pacific time maybe. Um, and then your score for the week was based on what the box office was on Friday, Saturday and Sunday uh, of each of those movies. And there were some bonus points you could get if you found the, the best value. And then Monday afternoon, when the box office totals become official for the weekend, then you total up your points and whoever has the most points for that week wins the week. And then there were, they set it up in a season format as well, that roughly, you know, somewhere between 10 and 14 weeks, there were season long winners and there were individual uh, week winners as well. Right. And so you sort of, became a expert practitioner of strategy on this game. And I have a few questions about how the strategy evolved. 
Um, I, I may have a wrong uh, perception of it. I did play the game for about two seasons, I think. And um, Pete and I, we, we have a mutual friend in common, which is how I was able to reach out to you to join the podcast. But I actually followed you on Twitter and on your predictions for a certain amount of time. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. But um, at a very high level, in order to succeed at the game, there were there were two dimensions. There, there was trying to accurately estimate the box office value of a given film. Correct. But then also, once you've got your estimates of all of the given films of a given week, putting in those Cinebucks and allocating your theater onto the rules of the game, there was a game within the game there which was very complicated and um, involved a lot of data analysis. How did, how did you come up with your system to, uh, to run through all of these uh, strategic options? Yeah, that's, that's the most common question that I would I'd get about that even at the time was, so I, I started to write um, just some blog articles about what I thought was going to happen each week. And you're absolutely right. There were two parts of it. There was trying to, trying to guess what each movie was going to make that weekend. And then there was, given that set of predictions, what was the optimal set of screens for you to pick? Like how many of movie A, how many of movie B, how many of movie C, or whatever the case might be. Um, and um, I, I first started, I, I as weird as this might sound, I was trying to be like the Matthew Barry of fantasy movie league, like to be an analyst kind of person. And eventually the, the, the folks that ran the game were kind enough to give me a forum to write a weekly article for them. And eventually I did a podcast for them as well. And that went on for about two years. But the, the, the core of it was I, you know, I'm, I'm a software engineer for a living and have, have been for the last 20 some odd years, almost 27 years now, I guess it is. And, um, I was growing frustrated by what was essentially the Excel gymnastics of the second part of that equation. So, you know, there was lots of people that had opinions on how to try to prognosticate the, uh, the individual movies. But then eventually I just, I wrote a program that helped me figure out, okay, well, given those predictions, what would be the optimal set of movies to play? And it was called the fantasy movie league analyzer. And uh, since I left Fantasy Movie League, they've since they've, they've combined that into the main tool set that's on the website. But there was there was a set of it started with a set of sliders that for each, you know, you for each of the 16 movies, you could you could use a slider to give an approximation of what you thought it would be. And eventually there were um, there were text boxes and other things where you could, you could put in more precise things. And then really, it's it's math at that point. Um, where you know, there's given given the, the movies and the prices of those movies each week, there was a limited number of combinations that were legal, quote legal. Right. Um, it was on the order of I, I want to say it's been several years since I've done this, but I want to say it was on the order of four million four million combinations every week. Wow. So, so I that were legal. Okay. So which one is the one that you want to pick? So so what I did was I wrote this little. Uh, this little set of JavaScript that would, given your predictions, it would then score and then rank every one of those 4 million combinations and give you the top 25. 
Um, and then as, as the tool matured, I got tremendous feedback from the community of other things they wanted to see. There was the idea of pinned lineups. Like if you wanted to, well, I think movie A might do 3 million or it might do 5 million. And I want to see how does that change? You know, what's the best lineup? If it's 3 million, what's the best lineup if it's 5 million? And I'd like to pin the results to be able to come back to them more easily later. So that was one thing I added as a suggestion of a user. And then there was another person that suggested, well, I want to be able to share what I've pinned and what my predictions are with other players. Um, there was a very active uh, interactive forum that people used to share ideas. So I had to come up with a way to, to, to make it so you could create a link that would then automatically populate your values and your pins so that you could share your thoughts with other players more easily. So those are the kinds of things that that I did. And then I just, I, I would write my weekly articles based on, you know, e either my own predictions or based on some of the, the professional prognosticators and kind of riff off of that and say, it, it kind of evolved into, well, if you think this is going to happen, then here's the movies you should select. But if you think that is going to happen, then you should select these other ones. So it came a lot less prescriptive and a lot more you know, there, here's like five things that could happen this weekend. And depending upon which one of them you believe, here's one of the five lineups you should pick. Wow. So you have basically just obliterated my critique of the game and my experience, because there was one part that I wanted to uh, challenge the game uh, on and talk about it with you. But you've already kind of described a way that there, there's a flaw in my thinking. But let me let me let me take you back through what my experience was. Okay. And, 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 um, at the first level, I, um, I played, uh, with a group of friends in a, in a book club and we had a lot of fun. Um, and it was fairly competitive to a certain degree. Um, and I thought we were all good players and everything, but when we contrasted our competition between ourselves versus where we would rank nationally, sure. it, it was a orders and orders of magnitude of difference. So at one point I got curious enough to realize like, okay, wait a minute. If I think I'm good at this game and I'm ranking so low nationally, what am I doing wrong here? And that is when I discovered uh, your analysis and your, your, your tool. And, and I realized that there was a game within the game. And my frustration was I joined this game I wanted to, you know, estimate the value of a movie. I, I'm a movie fan, and so I wanted to sort of play a prognosticator about whether I think a movie is being overrated or undervalued sure. in, in terms of its expectations versus its actual performance. And that's the game I wanted to play. But then this game within the game turned out to be, like, the more important differentiator, like how you allocate the cost uh, ratio and how you allocate your individual theater. To me, that seemed to be like the whole point of success. But what you've just described to me, it looks like there's a third level. Once you've gotten to that second level, does it then become again about the movies? Yeah, it, it's entirely, it, it was entirely. And I mean, they're on hiatus now is, you know, because there's no movies in theaters, but it was entirely about accurately predicting which what each movie was going to do each week. And more to the point, because of the way the bonus structure worked, it was more about finding 
what they call the best performer every week because you got bonus points for the best performer. And it was almost always the, the case that the the top lineup of the week included the best performer as many times as it could, given whatever the pricing was of that best performer that week. And the best performer was not necessarily the number one item, right? No. So best performer was defined as if you took the if if you took how much it made how much a movie made in the box office that week and divided it by its price. That was the best performer. Okay, okay. So if you found the best performer every week, you tended to do better than if you did not. Okay, okay. So so yes, if I had stuck with it and not been impatient, I would have discovered the next level of competition <laughs> there. So um one other question area I have for you, before you can even run your analysis to find the most efficient way to allocate your hypothetical theater, you do have to seed it with a set of predictions Yes. Um, for, for the numbers. And I'm assuming that there, there are some sources on the web that are public. Um, how, how did you go about this? Was it like a mix of public and private things? How, wh- where was your seed data from if that's not uh, – violating any uh confidentiality or uh no i don't believe it is and that's a good question and and that again was was something that i got a lot of questions on and it it changed throughout the course of my supporting running and supporting that tool um what i typically did was i started the week based on um based on some standard value like if if so if you took if you took a predicted box office and you divided it by the price, you would give you some value number. Well, I would just assume a value number of let's say 75 for all movies. And I would on Monday when the new set of movies came out, I would, I would default it so that they were all the same value, Mm -hmm. which that's not actually going to happen by the time you get to Friday, but that's how I would set the tool up on Monday. And then on Wednesdays, typically, is when you would get like ProBoxOffice.com and some of these other um, professional services that would publicly publish what their predictions for the weekend was. Um, and for a while, I uh, for probably for a majority of the length of the the three years I ran the tool, um, I I would I would I had a series of little scripts that would go out and screen scrape that data turn it into a, a data file that I could do something with programmatically. And then I would set it to, I would set each one to the average of the pro services is what I would do on like Wednesday and Thursday as those kinds of predictions started to become publicly available. Okay. So you had multiple sources. So you're almost kind of like doing a Nate Silver poll aggregation from multiple predictors there. Yeah. And that's actually an astute observation because before I started doing this, I had that same spring that I started playing the game, I read his The Signal and the Noise, which is where some of the inspiration came from. Now, I was not as good at predicting the box office values as as the people who, you know, the, the many, many sort of power players that ended up winning the season-long games. But that's that's where some of the theory came from, yeah. Cool, cool. So, um, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a, cinephile and avid follower of all of these things and i that was just one total black box for me because um the most i would ever see um certain outlets would 
write a feature article about a given movie and, you know, like Variety or The Hollywood Reporter. Um, and then sometimes sporadically they would put in, in the context of a larger article, they would mention that estimated box office opening weekend for this is known to be X. And they would never cite a source or anything. They would just throw that number out there. And I figured there was some sort of like unofficial room of wizards somewhere or something <laughs> that had that yeah. information. So, so proboxoffice.com was at the time the sort of the leading forecaster. There was another service called Showbuzz Daily. And they were, you know, they had different roles that they played in the movie industry at the time. And they were the ones that I would typically get, um, I would get those estimates from. And then based on that, I would often take like an average of those two. Like I'm, I'm pulling up an old article right here from the summer of 2016. And Pro Box Office thought that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would do 27 million Showbuzz Daily thought it would do $35.5 million, and it was priced at $750 Cinebucks that week. Mm-hmm. So, so what I would do with those two is I would average those two, and the average of those two is $32,250,000. If you divide that by that price, that $750,000, you get a value of $43,000. So, you, you, so for every Cinebuck you spent on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you got about a return of $43,000 to your score. Oh, okay. So, okay. So then, if you do that for all of the movies that were available that week, as I'm looking through this, the um, the the going into that week, uh, me before you, which is a movie I barely remember, mm-hmm. had a value of ninety two thousand. So it was it was predicted to be the best performer that week, and as such, there was a there was a using the using the uh, analyzer tool that I came up with. There was a a, there was a, a lineup of where you could play me before you on five different screens, and and that ended up being what what at least the pre weekend analysis came up with as the best combination to play because of that best performer value. Now the the couple of seasons that I played, I did not get. Um, I don't have a clear memory of this ever coming into play. But I was wondering, you know, one of the interesting things when you look at a box office report um, is the per screen average. Yeah. And when there when there is a um, well received art house film, its overall numbers are not going to be big, but its per screen number is usually sometimes going to be just ridiculously impressive. And in the course of the game, was there any value in picking any of those, or were, or were those just out of the running just because of their low total overall. Well, that's where you get into. So every week, so there were different people that would write different articles about different things. And some of them were sort of officially endorsed and had a column on the fantasy movie league website and other people wrote things in the forums. And there was, there was probably at any given time, a dozen people writing content for the game. And, and there was in, in, at the peak of when I was playing, there was about 15,000 people playing this game, I want to say. Um, but so there was a player who I actually, I, I happen to know his real name, but his name on the, you know, his, his screen name was Phil's Fun Flicks, all with P's. Mm-hmm. And, and Phil had a weekly column where he would do a screen analysis, which is very similar to what you're talking about here, where um, just because there was a theater count, 
does not mean how many screens at that theater that a particular movie might be playing. So for example, in a small town in Louisiana, you might have a theater that only has three screens. Whereas if you have like, you know, the AMC at downtown Disney has like 36 screens. And if they Mm -hmm. both happen to be showing Iron Man this weekend, like one of them is going to be generating a lot more revenue than the other because they're showing it on 10 screens and the other showing it on one. So I wrote a little set of scripts for Phil that would go in. There was a, a source for screen count data where we would look at on on Thursdays, we would look at um, showtime, published showtimes for the weekend. And that would tell you something about the number of screens at a particular theater that something was playing. And he would do a write-up every week of of a screen analysis and how many screens did did a movie that has been um, been in theaters for a couple of weeks, how many screens did it lose? And how did that compare with other screens of, you know, other movies of similar type? And so people would get into those kinds of analysis. And Phil was far, far better at that analysis than I was. I just provided him with the raw data and he did the, he did the analysis on that kind of thing. But yeah, there would be times in, in particular, it would happen with, um, with movies targeted at particular audiences. I remember one year and I can't for the life of me remember the movie, but there was a Diwali movie that was very popular amongst the Indian American community that celebrates that holiday mm-hmm. that was on, a, I want to say it was like a few hundred screens, but it did several million dollars because everyone who celebrates that holiday happened to go to that movie that weekend. So there were, there were lots of subtleties like that, that you could, you could find every once in a while. That's cool. Now, now, my next set of questions for you, they might be unfair, but I'm going to nominate you, Pete, as... Um, but you're, you're, you're going to ask, gonna, you're gonna ask them that? anyway? Fair enough. Yes, 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 yes. So I'm, I'm going to uh, put you in charge of a studio now. Okay. And, and with the observations that you made on the industry in general, um, you know, all the data that you've gone through, can you extrapolate any trends that you have learned uh, to advise uh, studios on their content. And like, do, do any of your experiences with the data run counter to a lot of the narratives that the entertainment media are telling us? Like, you know, one of the recurring things that we keep hearing is that there's, you know, there's no place anymore for like a mid-level studio film. Like the, the only way to make, make money, um, with big name actors and directors and producers is have them to do a franchise. Um, do you, do you, maybe you don't have a good answer for that one, but in general, were, were there any lessons that you would learn? And if you were running a studio, uh, what would you take your lessons and, and turn them into uh, studio practice? Well, I, I tell you, there was a particular movie the first year we were doing fantasy movie league that, led me to understand that I know nothing about this industry and <laughs> nor, nor could I ever pretend to. So I don't know if you remember this movie, but in the Christmas season of 2015, there was a movie called Krampus. You remember this movie? I remember the title. Um, I can't remember what it was though. It's, it's, it's kind of a Christmas horror movie and not mm-hmm. in like, a, you know, fun whimsical way like nightmare before christmas is it's like a straight you know 
Krampus is coming to like kill your children kind of movie instead sure, of Santa sure. Claus coming. It's and that movie was best performer the week that it launched. And I it didn't. I mean, I'm a middle aged white man. What 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 do I know? Like like it it just it didn't appeal to me at all, and it appealed to a ton of other people. And I just like I I didn't get it and still don't but it did really i mean it made i'm looking at the wikipedia page as we're speaking it grows 61 million against a budget of 15 million wow so wow. i mean some somebody was really smart for making that movie because it quadrupled their you know they made a ton of profit given what they spent on it and so yeah i i have no advice for that i mean i know you know if we're going to get into to nerddom and you know things like like um you know, the Star Wars franchise and things like that about the kinds of things I'd like to see. That's one thing, but I have, I have no, I have no way of making that predictive. If, if, if I did, then I would have done much better at fantasy movie league than I did. (laughs) So did your analytical observations on all of this stuff intrude on the movie going experience for you in any way? Like I could imagine if, if I was as steeped in this as you were, um, especially during the trailers, I always feel the commerce side of the of the business during the trailers because it it speaks to me that like oh this is what this exhibitor thinks of me as a demographic right. going into this particular and it's very reductive and sometimes I actually feel insulted like hey wait a minute why would you think that I'm 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 going to be game for that movie how dare you you know so did, did this intrude did you see more or less things because of it well i think i i had the experience like anybody who's played fantasy football has had like i most people that watch the nfl have a favorite team and then i think anybody has had a player on their fantasy football team who is playing against their favorite team and you have this mixed emotions moment when that player scores a touchdown or gets carted off the field like of you know which which one of which one of these outcomes do i want like the fake one or the real one right and so i've certainly had that feeling sitting in a movie that i didn't play and liking the movie yeah so I certainly yeah, to, had that experience. Yeah, to this day, I will. I, I I quit playing fantasy football after a while, and but to this day, there are certain players that I that I hold grudges against for ruining sure. my fantasy season <laughs> given year. So yeah, that's a great comparison. I didn't even think of that. Um, one other thing, um, I don't know if you were able to ob- observe any impact on the data or anything, but as a as a moviegoer my perception of the whole 3d thing was kind of weird. Um, when 3d first started becoming, uh, more, uh, supported by the studios in the very beginning, I kind of didn't want to see the 3d version. Most of the time, Sure. I, I, I wanted to go to like the regular 2d version, but the exhibitors populated all of their best screens with the 3d version. Right. And and I'm I'm a huge stickler for quality. So I would end up going to those screenings figuring like, well, I'm going to get the best sound, the best picture. Um so, you know, I'm going to see more 3D movies. And then once I got into that habit a couple of years ago, they've switched on me and that now they've demoted the 3D pictures 
and they've returned the 2D pictures into the best screens, which is what I wanted originally. But now that I was in this other habit, I kind of kind of it took me a little bit of adjust to getting back to what I wanted. Um, so, did 3D make an impact on the box office? Um, did did they learn some hard lessons? What what was the story there? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll take this back to, to the, the Phil screen analysis. Among the things that he had me do with the script that I wrote for him was to not just do an analysis of, uh, not analysis, not just do a data pull of, of screens at a particular theater, but do a separate tally for IMAX or 3D. Because um, that was an indicator of, you know, the, those IMAX and those 3D tickets are higher priced than the regular ones, and that that might have an impact on the box office. And it, I mean, like I said, it's been a couple of years, but I don't I don't recall that being a huge deal with anything except for like um, like MCU movies versus DC movies, and you know, like big big blockbuster kinds of things that you could see. You could see things like Jurassic World losing, you know, losing a bunch of IMAX theaters faster than you thought it was because, you know, the next movie of that ilk was coming in and, and taking those screens. Um, and so in terms of the game, that that's the kinds of things that we saw. And, and I mean, I'm pretty old school with that stuff. I, I prefer just the, the, the regular flat screen stuff myself. So I, 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 have, I have not seen like, you know, they're trying to give you a reason to come. And I think post COVID they're going to have an even harder time of that, but Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's how they tried to entice you was with IMAX or the three D's. And I don't know, there, there was a trend for that for a while, but I don't, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if, if they have other, you know, if they have other premium experiences like that, that they try to woo people back to theaters with. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you mentioned that because one other trend that I noticed, and I guess this is just due to the crowding of the marketplace generally, I used to prefer to go see a movie in a really good screen for my first viewing. And um, for certain movies, um, save an IMAX, <clears throat> excuse me, an IMAX experience for a second or a third screening. Right. But the, the, uh, the length of runs for IMAX seemed to be getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Sure. And I would be getting, I would be getting frustrated. You know, theaters would have this prime IMAX real estate, and in my view, they would be wasting it on some trashy movie that's in its first week. But from, of course, from their point of view, that trashy movie in its first week is going to perform better in IMAX than the thing that I'm wanting to see in its third week. Right. And that's I, I do remember that it was there were there were pretty big box pretty big drops for most movies after two weeks like that was a because and it has to do with how the contracts work that the houses are contracted to show the the movies for the first two weeks on the same number of say at the same number of theaters and then if you see a big drop off in that third week that means that the theaters are given up on that particular movie. And it just feels like the cultural conversation moves so rapidly now. Definitely. Uh, and, and um, you know, I, I've been following movie reporting for decades here, but um, th- to me, it, it, it's most apparent, like, if I've stacked up some TV shows on my DVR that I haven't watched in, like, maybe four or five weeks, 
and I go through and then I see the commercials for movies that they're promoting five yeah. weeks ago. It feels like ancient history, even though it was only five weeks ago. Yeah, it does. Yeah, you're so, not wrong about uh, that. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's been a weird thing to adjust to lately. So um, now that we are in the, uh, the the COVID era and having to watch a lot of films uh, at home that we would normally see in a theater, one film that I recently saw that I was I was very uh, entertained by is this documentary Boys State, um, and then our conversation about doing this podcast you mentioned that you've actually attended a boys state event um first of all have you have you had an opportunity to see the documentary i i have not i read the description and i read your i read your uh blogging of it um and certainly was was interesting and and brought up a lot of old memories so tell us a little bit about those memories uh uh what if you don't want to specify the exact year, maybe give me a general uh, decade or time frame. And like, where, what state did you go? Yeah, no. Well, Ronald Reagan was still president of the United States. I don't, I don't mind telling you that it was in 1987, like right, summer between my my junior and senior year of high school. So yeah, I mean, the the way that this worked back then was the the American Legion, you know, um, organization. I think most people know puts on this this um, nationwide event that they do in different states called Boy State. And I was living in Southern California at the time. And what they do is each, um, at least again, this is what they did back in the 80s, was that each <clears throat> each high school in the state gets to send one student to, in this case, Cal State Sacramento for two weeks to participate in this camp-like learn about government in more detail kind of experience. So, you know, I think they interviewed maybe five of us and I was fortunate enough to, to get selected. And then there was a dinner at the American Legion Hall in San Bernardino, which was the largest one in the area that I lived in. And then there was, you know, there, I don't know if you've ever taken a red eye bus ride from San Bernardino to Sacramento, but I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, that was that was like the most lasting memory of this was how painful that opening bus ride was. Um, but once once you get there, I mean, they're housing you in the Cal State Sacramento dorms. At least, like I said, that's what they did at the time. And um, each hallway was deemed a city. Each dorm was deemed a county. And then as a collection, all however many thousand of us there were, I want to say on the, on the order of 2,500, you would form a state government. And so that's what you would do is the first couple of days, you would form a city government and elect a city council and a mayor uh, based on the people in your hallway. And you could draft laws about how people had to behave in your city. And like, if you weren't a city resident, it would cost someone a dollar to walk through your hallway. Like you could do that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and then you would form these larger, these larger county governments uh, getting into later the first week. And then we had, you know, we would hold a, a, a governor election, I think the weekend. And then there were other activities that continued to go on um, after that for the duration of the second week. And then so with the American Legion, you know, at, at the time, they were almost all World War II veterans. This is in the late 80s. They were like my grandfather's age. And they the two things they coveted was to have someone from their region become governor of the boy state that year, or to have someone, one person got selected 
to go to Boys Nation in Washington, D.C., which if you've seen that famous picture of Bill Clinton and John F. Kennedy, that's where that picture was taken with Bill Clinton. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, Bill, okay. Bill Clinton went to Boys State and then he went to Boys Nation. And that's that's where that picture was taken. Is he got to meet Kennedy as part of that Boys Nation experience. Um, and the guy, the guy from the high school, the next town over was governor. So they were very excited when we came back. That is cool. Now, did you, uh, did you run for any office or anything? I was mayor of my hallway. Yes. And, and what, how would you describe your level of quote unquote political ambition, um, or interest at that point in your life? Uh, close to zero, I would say. I mean, I, I, I did it because it seemed like there were more activities around like the city management earlier in the, earlier in the week. And that staying busy early in the week is, is sort of what interested me. That's, that was the limit of, of what, of why I chose the, the city instead of um, the other. Um, and you know, I, I, I watched a lot of MTV after that. I remember watching a lot of MTV the second week. <laughs> so um, I have a suspicion that that your experience there may contrast with the, the experience of the kids in this recent documentary in one very clear respect, um, but uh, disabuse me of this notion if I'm wrong. But um, one of the features of this documentary is, of course, it's a fairly recent um, event and the uh, highly polarized nature of of politics in the in the country right now sure. managed to uh, manifest itself in the in the storylines and especially the interactions of all of the participants in the real event. But one of the strengths of this film and why I recommend it very highly to a lot of people is that um, I think you you can enjoy this film regardless of where you personally lie on the ideological spectrum myself personally some of the some of the more engaging kids in the story um may have been people that i would personally disagree with um in terms of policy and ideology but i i I would admire certain aspects of the way that they they approach their passion and these kids were ridiculously sophisticated in their analysis of i mean they seemed like they could uh they could slot right into some sort of elite political state, like right now. Um, I'm, I'm guessing uh, in California in '87, maybe things may have been a little bit less polarized and sophisticated. Maybe it was less high temperature volume. Or am I wrong there? No, you're not wrong. Not not only was it like that, but information to access access to information was much much different than it is now. I mean. 87, we didn't have cable at my house. So like, you know, I living in the Los Angeles area, there were, you know, you get ABC, NBC, CBS, and then there were three local stations that you could get as well. You know, it was, it was six, six stations. And I remember specifically, you know, I was, I was 17 years old the summer of 87. And <clears throat> one of the, one of the rallying cries for one of the office, one of the people running for governor was to end apartheid, and I didn't know what that was in 1987. That seems, wow. you know, and perhaps that was irresponsible of me at the time. But you can't imagine in today's media experience something that 
um, cruel and that large being completely like everybody who can read would know what that is. Right. And again, maybe that was irresponsibleness on my part at the time. It was just access to information was much, much different. And, yeah, and, I think, and, and that led that led to, I think, far less polarization as a result. Yeah, and and it's interesting that you point that out because that is one of the key drivers of the events in the story. Um, the, the the generation has they're so adept at at um, being internet natives. Let, let's say um, that the boy state experience now has a, a very strong online component to it as well, and the the mediation between the reality and the, the memes and the Instagram stuff going on is just a fascinating subculture thing in and of itself. So I highly recommend it. You should definitely check okay, it out. Okay. Well, thanks. So I, um, I do have one standard question I ask everybody that I bring onto the podcast. Okay. Shoot. And that it's just, what's on your radar? What, what are you reading? What are you watching? What can you recommend? Um, let's see. I'm a little bit behind. I'm watching second season of Umbrella Academy right now. Um, I'm rereading the Timothy Zahn trilogy um, from 90 Star Wars books. And let's, I mean, and I just, you know, COVID thing, I got back into Lego building. I built a steamboat Willie that was about 700, 700 blocks and a uh, an attentive four. If you're going to make a, a deeper Star Wars reference that uh, was about 1700 pieces. Wow. Wow. Now the, uh, going back and rereading the Zahn books, have you, have you read any of his news on um, books about Thrawn? I, I have very few things that I am firm about in my life, but reading anything that is what, what they claim is now expanded universe is one of them. You're, you're strongly opposed to it. I am. They had a perfectly great set of stories they could have made movies out of and chose not to do so. Well, I'm afraid I'm afraid I'll, I'll have to agree to respectfully disagree here. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a I'm a tried and true Star Wars fan and there were there were a lot of the expanded universe books that I that I enjoyed and loved quite a lot, but um I I I I felt there was wisdom in 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 a clean slate approach. Um but um I uh, I definitely hear you because I, I hate uh, I hate losing some of those things that were brilliant about the about the Zon trilogy. So um, they um, I think they're trying to kind of backdoor bring in some of those things that were great, um, but it's kind of, I can, I can definitely understand your frustration. That's for sure. I mean, I, I, I've, I've very much enjoyed the Mandalorian and, you know, I'll, I'll watch all the movies at least once, no matter what, but I'm, I'm not into any of the new expanded universe stuff. Well, that's a shame. That's a shame. Um, they've, they've had a number of really talented writers who've, uh, uh, participated in it. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I certainly understand. Oh, I'm sure. Principle, uh, seeing seeing something you loved, uh, quote unquote, negated. I, I I totally I totally understand not wanting to right. continue any further with that. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, I and I love the character of Thrawn, and um, I was a little bit frustrated myself that the only way that he was kind of brought back in was in at least initially through this uh, cartoon series, which is not necessarily the greatest thing, you know, 
uh, it had some charming elements to it and everything. Well, but, what was um, worse about that is that they erased it while Rebels was in production. So he started out one way, and then you could kind of tell when they made the decision to uh, to erase the, the old EU and make it Legends because the character, I thought, changed in the latter part of that run. Yeah, yeah. And they... Um, I still think that that character could work its way into one of the TV shows or one of the movies, and I would I would be fascinated to see how that goes because um, I do think that that's that's a brilliant character. Um, so um, that's cool. How far how far are you into the reread of the trilogy? I'm about a third of the way through the second one. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, those are great books. Those are great books. So um, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Sure. I, I really appreciate it. Um, before you head out, um, remind everyone, I think I may have mentioned this in the introduction, but um, where can we find you on the web and, and uh, find more of your work? Oh, yeah. I don't post much on social media anymore, but you can find me. Um, my Twitter handle is NerdGuru. Cool, cool, cool. And um, through your uh, explanations, I think I'm intrigued again about uh, Fantasy Movie League and once we get into a post-COVID world, I, uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll try my hand at it again. Cool. All right, Pete. Well, thank you so much for coming by. All right. Thanks, Bill.